Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see all this stuff about demonic possession, spiritual attack, demonic activity, and you wonder, where did that go? Or does that still happen today? For instance, in Mark chapter 1, just as Jesus is starting his ministry, he goes to Simon Peter's house. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then Mark chapter 1, verse 32 through 44 say this, that evening as at sundown, they brought to him, to Jesus, all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door And he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now note, it is nighttime in a time where there is no electricity. And the entire city, many sick and many demon-possessed, are walking toward Peter's house. Now I don't know about you, but if I'm at Peter's house... And many demon-possessed people at nighttime with no electricity are coming toward my house. I'm freaking out a little bit. But as you read Mark chapter 1, there's no fear going on. There's no hesitation that you pick up on. It seems really scary. But also note in this passage, everyone seems to be aware of who has a demon. Like they brought their demon-possessed friends and relatives to Jesus. Like, oh, Grandma has a demon, you know, or Cousin Eddie, he has the demon, like whatever. Like they're all going to Jesus and, and this demonic possession or oppression, or we could say being demonized, was somewhat common, it seems. So here's the question, where, where did it go? Does demonic oppression and possession still occur today? And if so, what do we do about it? Well, over the next two weeks, we're going to try to answer that question. Last week, Samuel kicked us off thinking about Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Today, we're going to continue in that passage of Ephesians 6, so you can turn there, talking about the armor of God. Next week, we're going to get really practical about what does spiritual attack look like and how do we battle And friends, we're spending three weeks on this, slowing down even from what we originally planned because our theological camp, the Reformed Church, often says too little about this and thinks too little about this topic. We understand the battle of the world and worldly philosophy. We understand the battle of the flesh, the sinful flesh, but we forget about the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil, all three fronts are coming at you. So in Ephesians chapter 6, we find this, a believer must be fully prepared for the threat of the enemy. The believer must be fully prepared for the threat of the enemy. We're starting where Samuel started last week, but we're going to continue through verse 20 today. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10, says this, finally be strong in the Lord And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. 
Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains." that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. A believer must be fully prepared for the threat of the enemy. Point number one today is this. Spiritual warfare does exist today. Spiritual warfare does exist today. I'm going to kind of do a summary from... um, Samuel's message last week because we've got to kind of have the on-ramp to understand verses 14 through 20. So I'm going to give six, six important things about verses 10 through 13. Now I'm just flying through this. You can listen to Samuel's message online uh, to get all this because you're not going to have time to write it down. Six important things about 10 through 13. First, in verse 10, we are to be strong in the strength of God's might, not our might. Be strong in, in God's might, not our might. We fight, but we are empowered by the Spirit of God and given the armor of God to fight. Second, verse 11 and 13 speak of the armor of God. This is God's armor, not your armor. In Isaiah chapter 59, it speaks of the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation worn by the Messiah and now used by us. This is the Messiah's armor given to us. Third, the armor must be put on. It is not a given that each person is wearing the armor. Each believer is in the battle. They're already in the battle. They're already having, you know, the darts coming, the arrows coming. But not everybody has the armor on. As Samuel said last week, there are no civilians in this battle. John Stott says it this way, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We must not underestimate the enemy. Fourth, verse 12 says that the enemy is not human. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We do wrestle against the demonic. We wrestle against the demonic. Whether you think you wrestle or you do not think you wrestle, you wrestle. Point number five, in the context, the wrestling against the demonic is on the heels of what Paul talks about as normal life, marriage, parenting, or the slave-master relationship, which would be the workplace for us. Normal life is where demonic attack happens. Normal life is where demonic attack happens. We have to know that. It's not just in the extraordinary moments. If you have struggle in your marriage, guess what? There's probably demonic attack. If you struggle in your parenting, guess what? There's probably demonic attack. 
If you struggle in the workplace, guess what? You got it. Number six, the primary talk here in the context is speaking to the church, not the individual. Where do I get that? Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Now, you might miss something. We missed this in the English. The you there is plural. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that y'all, that all y'all can stand, may be able to stand. It's, it's plural. It's talking about the entire church is to put on the entire armor. So yes, we individually f- fight spiritual warfare, but it's not primarily the focus here. It's primarily focused on us, the church, battling satanic attack with the armor. So let's look at each piece of the armor of God, realizing that we need it because the battle is intense and it is normal is in normal life. Point number two, we must stand firm against spiritual attack by putting on God's armor. Verse 14 says, stand therefore. Paul's very concerned about the soldiers of God standing. He says stand a lot in this passage. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, having done all to stand firm. Then in verse 14 here, stand Some theologians think this is a vital category in the book of Ephesians. Just as we're to sit, we're seated with him, Ephesians uh, 2.6, just as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called, Ephesians 4.1, here we stand. So we sit, we walk, we stand. Now why do we stand? Because we're under attack. And this standing is speaking of alertness and readiness and awareness. The battle is raging whether we want to be aware of it or not. We're called to stand. And this standing is not just defensive, right? There's a standing, like an offensive lineman, but you're moving forward. You're, you're heading forward. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said, and he's talking to the church in Ephesians 6, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What are gates, offensive or defensive? They're defensive. So who's on offense? The church. So we are moving forward, storming hell with all the armor, knowing that we're getting shot at all the time. The gates of hell will not stand. The church of God will stand. Friends, many in our day don't stand firm. They give up. Some give up because they're not convinced the battle is that big of a deal. Some give up because the battle is just too hard. Some give up because they lack courage. But friends, this is where that plural you comes in. We've got to keep sight of the plural here. We help each other in the battle. We battle for each other, alongside each other, not battling each other. When the whispers come by Satan about the person standing beside you, oh, that's, that's satanic. I battle with my brother or with my sister. We take courage as we hold on to God's word together, as we hold up each other's arms. We are strong and courageous in the strength of his might, and we do it together. We put on the armor together. 
Verse 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So let's talk through each kind of part of the armor. Kids, you, can, you might have already colored the whole sheet, but you can go through one at a time. I'm just going to walk through the, the sheet. Fastening the belt of truth. The truth of God is wrapped around this warrior. A belt in that time is even more significant than the times now where people would wear a robe. They kind of had that, it's called gird up the, the robe and kind of tuck it into the belt so they could run. It kind of made shorts so they could, could run, they could be uh, maneuvering better, they could fight better. The belt held the weapon as well. It held the sheath that would hold the sword of the Spirit. So we could say that this truth is that, that solid confidence in God's word, kind of the, the John 17, sanctify them in truth. Jesus said, for your word is truth. That's true, obviously. But I appreciate what John Stott says about the belt of truth. Get this. He says, the belt of truth is the truthfulness, the integrity, and the character of the warrior. The solid character of a person holds together or validates the rest of their life. Let me give you an example. If you show me a person with solid character wielding the sword of the Spirit, I'll show you a warrior causing havoc to Satan's kingdom. But if you show me someone wielding that same sword of the Spirit, but their life and their character undermines the Word of God, I'll show you someone fighting for the wrong team. They're a they're advancing satanic things with their hypocrisy. We see that all the time. Friends, this is the belt of truth. Kent Hughes says, truthfulness is never an accident. Like This is talking about who you are when no one's around. This is talking about who you are here. That's a belt. That holds life and the rest of the armor together. It makes you more stable and able in the fight. Charles Spurgeon says, walking is far more important than talking. Oh, we can talk. We can talk all about what we believe, but do we walk it out? We, the church, must put on the belt where we repent of our sins, where we live in consistent integrity, and we live this out, putting on the belt of truth individually and as a church. Next, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is what guards the vital organs, but specifically the heart. So here's my question. How do we guard our heart? Answer, with the righteousness of Christ. This is the breastplate of righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Oh, friends, how many people don't understand that when Jesus Christ died, he took all of their sins on himself, but also accredited to them his full righteous standing before the Father. You don't earn it, but he earned it. It's his full favor. And friends, that guards your heart. Let me spell out some of the implications of that, how that guards your heart. It guards your heart from legalism, thinking that we have to earn God's favor. Let me kind of give you a, a, a little scenario. If, if you're living out today and it's just a really good day, you had a great quiet time and, you know, everything was blissful coming in today and you sang songs and you're going home and, and it's just a, at the end of the day, you're like, man, that was a really good day. If you forget about the righteousness of Christ, you're congratulating yourself. Self-congratulations. A legalist 
congratulates themselves a lot. But on a really bad day, that's gone awful. You missed your devotion time. You yelled at your kids on the way here. You know, whatever it is, it's a really bad day. The legalist has self-condemnation. The legalist goes from one to the other. Congratulations, condemnation. Congratulations, condemnation. And it's all focused on self. Friends, when we remember the righteousness of Christ, it gets the focus off of us. It guards our heart because the focus is on him. As Tim Keller says, we have the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Oh, friends, the righteousness of Christ guards our hearts. It also guards us from licentiousness, thinking that grace is cheap, not costly, or that we can rule our own lives however we want. Friends, the righteousness of Christ guards our hearts and allows us to truly know the love of the Father. That father in the parable of the prodigal son that runs after the prodigal, the prodigal who is licentious until he becomes a legalist. If you don't know the love of the father, you're just flopping back and forth between licentious and legalist, licentious and legalist. I'll run, do whatever I want until I need the father again, and then I'll pay the debt, and can I just be a servant in your house? Friends, we are on that pendulum all the time if we don't understand the righteousness of Christ. But the Father invites you to that party. Here's how one song puts it. When Satan tempts me to despair, which, wait a second, happens all the time. Like That's not the unusual thing. When Satan tempts me to despair tomorrow and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sins. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, righteous. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, that's putting on the breastplate of righteousness that guards your heart. Oh, get to know the righteousness of Christ. Guard your heart. Paul calls the righteousness of Christ gain and everything else loss. Everything, your whole resume, all your accolades, all your job, all your promotions, all your kids, all your family, all everything. Loss, what's gain? The righteousness of Christ, Philippians 3. Isaiah 59 says the Messiah has worn this breastplate of righteousness, and now it's given to you. Friends, this is a, a well-worn, battle-tested piece of equipment to guard our hearts. Continuing on, verse 15 says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Shoes of gospel peace. In the mid-1960s into the mid-1970s, there was no better NCAA basketball coach than Coach John Wooden for UCLA. Out of 12 seasons from the 60s into the 70s, he won, or they won, 10 championships. Out of 12 seasons, 10 national championships. When Wooden would have his team gather at the beginning of each year, the new freshmen, the new transfers, and those who won the championship the year before, he gathered his team in the locker room as they're starting their first practice. He would gather these NCAA Division I basketball players, and here's what he would do. He would say, here's how you wear 
a shoe. Here's a basketball shoe. He teaches players how to put on socks so they wouldn't get blisters on their feet. He said the majority of his players would come in to his team with the wrong shoe size because the parents always purchased something that was a half size or a whole size bigger because their basketball player's son was always growing and they're not going to just keep putting out money. So they always had shoes that were too big. So he stood there season after season, first practice. This is a basketball shoe to NCAA Division I team that many of them had already won a championship, or three. Friends, this is the gospel shoe. The shoe for the believer, whether they have believed for 40 years or 40 minutes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring the saving reign of God's kingdom on earth by Christ's life, his death on the cross for sins, and his resurrection, so that those who repent of their sins and trust Jesus are united to him through faith and thereby reconciled to God and brought into his kingdom as adopted sons and daughters of God to the end that God in Jesus might be glorified in all things. That's That's the basics of the gospel. That's the shoe. This is a basketball shoe. This is a gospel of peace shoe. Put on those shoes, those shoes with good traction that don't slip in battle, that endure the long marches. Put on those shoes that have a readiness, a leaning into the war. Put on those shoes like Isaiah 52, then quoted in Romans 10 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Oh, friends, like an offensive lineman digging in their cleats, ready to defend their teammates and execute the play, we put on what Kent Hughes calls war boots that give us peace that are on the foundation of the gospel. Oh, friends, let us put on those. Let us know those. Let us not move on from the gospel. Oh, I I understood that when I came to know Christ 10 years ago. It's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z, as Tim Keller says. The gospel is the whole life. Let's understand the whole, understand the depth of the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Next point here is to take up the shield of faith. Paul's talking about a large shield. Probably a little better drawing, kids. I know you have your drawing, and we couldn't find one that had one that kind of fit the specs of what I wanted, but just go with it. You can actually extend the shield. This is like a four-foot shield by two and a half. It was translated from the original language. It basically meant door. So you're carrying around a door. You're able to duck down and hide your entire body behind this shield slash door. This shield was big. This shield had two layers to it that were purposely for extinguishing the darts. The darts would be lodged into it, uh, and the oxygen would be cut off from the, the flames, and so then it would, it would uh, put out the fire. So oftentimes these shields would be smoking because they had all these arrows lodged into them. 
and they'd put out these arrows, these flaming darts of the evil one. Just imagine how many of us have shields of faith that just have smoke coming up because the enemy has tried over and over to attack. Friends, this faith, as Hebrews 11 says, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith, our trust, our belief in God extinguishes Satan's arrows. And these arrows intend to kill us. These arrows intend to wound us, burn us, and burn our faith to the ground. Like, let's not get, like, kind of happy clappy. Like, he wants to hurt you. We never see Satan, like, being super friendly. He's deceptive, right? But he's not on your side. The shield of faith guards us. John Stott says it this way. Faith lays hold of promises of God in times of doubt and depression. And faith lays hold of the power of God in times of temptation. Friends, get that quote. Memorize that quote. Faith lays hold of the promises of God. It it holds on to the promises of Scripture. It holds. It holds tightly to God's Word. Faith lays hold of the promises of God in the times of doubt and depression. You have doubt and depression. Hold to the promises of God. But faith lays hold of the power of God in times of temptation. When you're tempted tomorrow, later today, maybe right now, lay hold of the power of God. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Call out in the name and power of Jesus Christ. Faith lays hold of promises and power. And friends, courageous faith guards us in the midst of attack. Faith is a shield to protect our front, which assumes we're on offense. Nothing's guarding behind us. Why? Because we're going forward. Joseph Son was a Romanian pastor in the 1970s who experienced quivers full of demonic arrows. He was arrested for his faith because he preached the gospel in this communist country that hated the gospel. But listen to this quote and just how arrows drop at this man's faith. He recounts this story. He says, During an earlier interrogation, I had told another officer who threatened to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I'd better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. He sent me home. Faith in God bolsters courage and persecution. Faith in God bolsters courage and suffering. And friends, faith in God bolsters mundane, daily struggle and demonic attack with your spouse, tension with your children, struggles with other brothers and sisters, struggles with your boss. Friends, we take seriously spiritual warfare, so we must take the shield of 
faith. Chapter, or, uh, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Helmet of salvation, just as the breastplate guards the heart, the helmet guards the mind. We are to love God with all of our mind. We're to think right thoughts about God, preach the gospel to ourselves, and understand the great salvation of Christ, past, present, and future. We were saved through Christ's death and resurrection. We are being saved now through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, and we will be saved in the coming age when we spend eternity with Christ. Our salvation is like a helmet. It guards our mind. I love what Paul says in Philippians 2.5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, what? In Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. And then Paul goes into explaining the gospel of Christ with the humility of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and exaltation of Christ. That's the mind. Walking the path of the Savior which guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that we think what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and anything worthy of praise. Philippians 4. The helmet of salvation guards our mind. Next is the sword of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Friends, this is the only offensive weapon thus far. We'll get to prayer in a second. God's word is massively significant in fighting satanic attack. We fight demonic forces with the word of God, with the sword. If you do not carry your sword, if you don't know your sword, if you don't have a sword, you have no offensive weapon in your hand. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is God-created. Just like God created the earth, the waters, the land, animals, humanity, with His Word, He breathed out Scripture by using holy men taught by the Holy Spirit. And though He uses their personalities and their viewpoints of these men, it is breathed out by God. It is God's word, not man's word. 66 books of the Bible written in three different continents, 40 different authors over 4,000 years with one message about God coming after his people to bring them to himself, a kingdom of priests. 1 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. God's word forms a man. God's word forms a woman. But we must use his word. God's, God uses, friends, his word in our lives. I've read this. I've experienced this. I've witnessed this. God uses the word to fight doubts when the believer is suffering and Satan's whispering. Does God really care? Does God really care? God uses his word when we battle anxiety and the believer struggles and, and Satan whispers, does God really see? Does God really see what you're going through? Friends, God uses his word as we battle fear and Satan whispers, is God really powerful? God uses his word to battle our lust as Satan whispers, is God really good and satisfying? Does, is God really good? 
Friends, God's word is a sword. In ancient times, this sword that Paul's talking about is the short sword, which speaks of close hand-to-hand combat. This is not the modern-day drone person a thousand miles away doing a little drone, sending missiles in, then flying back. No harm. Going home, sleep at night in their own bed. Like That's not what's going on here. This is hand-to-hand combat. This is close. This is real. Jesus, uh, Jesus experiences this in the desert as he battles with the word. Satan comes to Jesus in a point of weakness. Friends, if you don't know your points of weakness and that Satan comes to you in your points of weakness and Satan knows your weakness, you're giving up part of the battle here. He comes to Jesus in the midst of weakness and fights with words. And what does Jesus battle with? The word of God. And then what does Satan do? He uses the word of God out of context. Friends, we've got to not only know the word, we've got to know about the word and the contextual meanings of the word of God, the truth of the word. And Jesus models how to battle by fighting Satan with word. Fighting Satan with word. Kent Hughes says this, the word of God draws the blood of Satan. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word actively shapes us and guards us at the same time. Like God's word battles the world and the flesh and the devil all at the same time. He gets a lot done with his word. And the last part of the armor is prayer. Prayer. John Bunyan called this all, all prayer. You know, he just has like different terms in Pilgrim's Progress. Like everybody has like the, the interesting name. All prayer. Or we'll call it prayer in the spirit. This is communication with the king. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer may be like the seventh part of the armor of God, but many think it kind of undergirds the entire armor. It's the dependence on the king. It's the, the church being in step with the commanding officer during the battle. Kent Hughes puts it this way, those who engage in spiritual warfare, regardless of how well they wear the truth and righteousness and faith and salvation, regardless of how well they are grounded in peace, regardless of how well they wield the word, must make prayer the first thing. The Christian soldier fights on his knees. Oh, friends, we, we battle with prayer which sometimes seems like the most ridiculous thing to us because we don't understand prayer is communication with the one who is mighty. 
Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You need his might. This isn't your figuring out stuff, your contemplation and your strategy and objectives and battle plan. No, this is God. We need him. Hughes points out several types of prayer. We don't have time to get into all of them here in depth, but here's kind of what he says about prayer. First kind of prayer is spirit-directed prayer, praying in the spirit, praying in accordance and dependence on and the guidance of the spirit. Next is continual prayer. He talks about praying at all times. This is normal life is communication with the Lord, the commanding officer. There's varied prayer, prayers and supplications, as 1 Timothy 2 says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. There's, there's different types of prayer. If our prayer only sounds the same all the time, we're missing out on some aspects of prayer. Then there's persistent prayer, keeping alert with all perseverance, Paul says. In your prayer, there should be perseverance, which means there's going to be a temptation to fall asleep, there's going to be a temptation to be distracted. You're not the only one, friends. We all do this. There's temptation, so there's a perseverance we need in prayer. And then intercessory prayer. This is prayer for the saints. This is praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things I love about Realm each week, you never know what's going to pop up there, and someone's like, I need prayer. I need prayer. Praying for you, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. And like all these different things about prayer. Why? Because we need to be holding it. We battle with helping each other through prayer, intercessory prayer. Douglas Moose says that prayer is the strongest of weapons. Friends, when we talk about fighting with the demonic, we battle with prayer. We pray in Jesus' name and by Jesus' authority. And notice Paul, the apostle, the, the spiritual heavyweight, he asks for prayer. It's like he, he wrote like half the New Testament, but he's asking the church to pray for him. I, I, I need your prayers. He needs God to work because apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing. And notice what he asks for prayer about. He asks for clarity and communication and for courage. But also notice what he does not ask for. He does not ask to get out of prison. That's interesting. He does not ask for suffering to flee. He wants to be a good soldier. He asks for boldness, for courage, for clarity. Friends, Paul sits in prison most likely chained to a guard, a soldier, a warrior, and he looks at the different parts of the armor of this guy beside him, and he thinks of a greater armor, the armor of God which defends and guards Christ's church. It is well-worn armor. It is battle-tested armor. It is an armor worn by the Messiah Christ himself, and it's given to us. So here's the question this passage asks. Will we put it on? Will we? Will we individually, will we as a church put on the armor of God? Will we take this seriously? Will, will we believe this is true? Will we believe that the battle is raging? Or will we walk out today living as though demonic attack and satanic opposition is just a fairy tale? 
Because that's another whisper. That's another lie that we believe sometimes when the battle is raging for our hearts. Friends, God does not leave us stranded. He provides for us. God does not leave us stranded. He gives us his armor. God does not leave us stranded. He is with us always, even to the end of the age, and he has the victory. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has the victory here, and so we get to share in the victory. We know the outcome, as Samuel was talking about last week. We know the outcome, but the The arrows are still flying. The game's not over. Wounds still happen. So we must fight and battle. Next Sunday, we're going to get really practical about the fight and what that looks like. In many ways, last week was talking about knowing your enemy. This week's talking about knowing your armament. Know know the armor of God. And next week's talking about know how to battle. Friends, we must know how to battle. I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, if the band will come up, I'd love to sing. They don't know I'm asking them to do this, so sorry, guys. I'd love to sing that last song again. Um, oh, church, arise, if you guys would be willing to come. Sorry, Nick, you're having to pass your kid off. I'm going to pray for us because, friends, we've got to battle. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would open our eyes Give us faith and believe what your word says. Lord, where we have ignored this passage, ignored that there actually is a wrestling, there actually are schemes of the devil, where we have ignored that, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. And Lord, let us take on, let us stand firm and take on the armor of God. Lord, we need you. And we just pray in the name of Jesus, where there's demonic attack now, demons be gone in Jesus' name. And Lord, let the word, as we talk it, speak it, hear it, sing it, go deep into our hearts and let faith arise. And Lord, pour out your spirit on us. Awaken Belief, Lord, save souls and encourage hearts by the power of the Spirit, Lord, a power that we can't muster. Oh, Lord, we pray for our church, Lord, that you would awaken us by the power of your Spirit, awaken us by the power of your Spirit, and that we would fight, not fight with each other, but fight for each other. Not fight for favor, but fight from favor. We have your favor. We have the Messiah's armor. Oh, Lord, let us put it on and walk this out for your glory and your honor, for we know your victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.